Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. It's Friday. I'm tempted to say we made it to Friday, but you know, I don't know whether we've actually made it through the whole day. And because it's Friday, we are joined by my colleague, Bill Crystal. Uh, happy weekend, first of all, Bill. Thank you, Charlie. And we've made it to December. Think of it that way, at least, right? So one one more month of 2021. That's, that is good news. And by the way, you notice that season six of Shetland is uh, is being rolled out. Have you started that yet? I haven't, but I, it's on uh, Susan and I have, in theory, we're, we're going to get to that. You know, there are so many good British and foreign crime shows, as you and I have discussed before, that it's hard to keep up with them if you don't want to spend 10 hours a day watching TV, which one probably shouldn't do. I don't know why not, but no. You know. Well, season six is excellent. The problem is, is normally the way I watch these series will be, the, you know, after the whole season is dropped, you know, then I can decide whether I want to binge or watch two episodes or one episode. Right. And this season is being dropped one episode at a time. So we have to watch it one episode at a time, like in the old days. Yeah, that's <laughs> the, ridiculous. The, who's ever done yeah, that? And who's done that in the last 20 years? Yeah, that's well, crazy. see, I, I've mentioned this. I have not watched Succession yet, in part because I'm saving it up. Uh-huh. I want to make sure that I'm able to do this. Okay, so let's dive in because you've had some very interesting commentary on the Twitters in the last 24 hours, including um, your back and forth with the White House chief of staff. Should we actually start with that one? Sure. That Ron Klain clearly is following you on Twitter and the White House chief of staff is taking time out from running the world to respond to your tweets, Bill, about COVID testing. I know. I mean, I guess on the one hand, it's a little flattering and not just flattering but if, to the degree he's reading it maybe it'll affect policy and i think i'm right in this particular rather limited criticism of one point in president biden's you know COVID agenda but so i'm glad he's reading it maybe he's asking people at hhs and fda and stuff well, what, what if is crystal right is but then he of course responded uh, and, and said i was wrong but on the whole i would feel better to be honest if it were a um deputy assistant to a special assistant in charge of Twitter, you know, who was some 24 year old who was responding to me and defending the administration. I don't know, shouldn't Ron Klain have, have better things to do? But the substance of it was kind of interesting. Let's talk about the subs because you've yeah. been on this for some time. This is not just this week. You have been on the administration on getting these rapid tests. And finally, they seem to be uh, recognizing that maybe rapid tests would be kind of important right now. Yeah, so that's very much recognized by Biden, and, and, and there's going to make them free and allegedly have many more of them. But the fundamental FDA roadblock, which means we have two, I think, uh, companies providing them, and Europe has 20 companies providing them, and they cost 25 bucks for two here if you've gone to a CVS to buy them, and two, three, four dollars in most European countries. That hasn't changed. Now, what they're doing is going to, they're saying you can get, insurance has to pay for them. They're mandating that insurance, mm-hmm. private, if you're on a private insurance plan, it will pay for these tests. But for me, it's a foolish way of doing it. I mean, what are we going to do? You're going to go to CVS, you're, you're a hardworking, you know, single mm-hmm. mom, maybe, and uh, you're supposed to go to CVS, shell out, I don't know, if you want to, let's say you want to test yourself. You've been at the cashier at the supermarket, you're worried that you might be catching something from some jerk who didn't get vaccinated. Your kids are in school. You want to make sure you can test them easily. You want to pick up what, three, four, five of these. You spend a hundred bucks, which you don't necessarily have. It's over the counter. You don't get like a, the way insurance usually works, I believe, is you have some kind of, you know, a pharmacist or doctor, you know, document, which then allows the insurance to pay for it. 
here you've got some receipt from CVS. I guess you would email it to the insurance company. Who do you? Well, mail wouldn't it you to? just show them your insurance card and then CVS just charges it directly? I mean, how does it work? Well, I think that would be good, but I don't yeah. know that it works that way because, again, if you think of your experiences at CVS, I don't think you're going to the pharmacist to get this, so you just go to the cashier at the front. I don't know. Anyway, the whole thing is much more complicated than what they've done in Europe, which is break through the the kind of artificial FDA roadblocks to uh, authorizing a lot of these tests, having a ton of competition, having 20 providers, and having them cost 2 3 $4. So that was the point I made. It's much better, and this is a point I'm totally borrowing from 10 different public health, mm -hmm. 100 different public health experts who are all frustrated by the slowness of the administration on this. Anyway, maybe they'll continue to move in this direction, at least having the tests in principle be you know, free or, or, or paid for by your insurance company and, and, and the commitment to have more of them will help a little bit. But if this new variant takes off, if it is more transmissible, even if let's pray it's not more mm -hmm. severe, people will want to be able to do the the testing. I just was talking to someone this morning, actually, here, uh, whose daughter is in a, I don't know, a music class, I think, with someone else. Uh, this is like a little, you know, seven-year-old, eight-year-old uh, with someone else who seems to have tested positive. And again, the way we're set up, she's now quarantining. She's quarantining, which means mm -hmm. uh, her parents have problems in terms of adjusting work and babysitting and so forth. And the, and the kid has, instead of just being able to give the rapid test every day, make sure she's fine or at least not transmissible, not, not contagious, which is really what the rapid test tests and send her off to school. So I still think the testing is a pretty big hole in our approach. It is a huge hole in our approach. So speaking of COVID, uh, last night, I mean, the good news is that we didn't, uh, the Senate didn't shut down the, the government uh, over the vaccine mandate. The, the bad news is they almost did. And you had an interesting commentary on this. The, uh, the headline in CNN was, uh, Republicans pull back from the COVID brink for now. Sanity prevailed Thursday night when the Senate overcame an effort by a handful of conservative Republican senators who had threatened to force a shutdown over this issue. But your your argument on Twitter this morning was that that headline, Republicans pull back from the COVID brink, is not really what happened because every Republican actually voted to prevent the government requiring vaccinations or weekly testing, not just for private businesses, but for the government's workforce. So let's talk about that for a moment. That was an extraordinary vote. Every Republican voted against that requirement. It is extraordinary, and I think the headline did a disservice, actually, to the piece, which was a well-written and, and you know good piece about what actually had happened. I suppose the headline's correct only in the sense that they didn't insist on, they gave unanimous consent to go ahead then with the vote on, mm -hmm. on the continuing resolution to keep the government open for, I guess, three more months or so. But no, it's really striking. Again, and, and this amendment just, I was following this last night because I, was, I did Brian Williams late at night, and so I was thought we might discuss mm -hmm. it. We did a bit. And uh, so I was trying to kind of keep an eye on it. And I figured, well, this amendment, at first I thought, well, okay, this kind of a conservative libertarian case for not having the government mandate a private business doing this, leave it to the private businesses one way or the other. It's not clear exactly what the constitutional authority for this is. I don't quite agree with that, but you know, it's public health, but still it's not a crazy point of view. And I could see that. But then I discovered as I did, you know, five minutes, 30 seconds of Googling, that the amendment doesn't just stop the government from mandating private businesses to insist on vaccinations. A, the Biden plan is vaccination or weekly testing, which is an awful lot more right. permissive, I would say. A lot more permissive than what some businesses are doing on their own, which is actually insisting on proof of vaccination, right? And secondly, um, 
it's not just private businesses. This also would apply to the government workforce, including the military. So this is basically a vote against any and all vaccine mandates. And if you combine it with what's happened at uh, the state and local level, where Republicans are ferociously trying to even stop private businesses from themselves choosing to have such mandates, and they're trying to give unemployment benefits in some states to people who quit rather than uh, get vaccinated or get tested every week, the whole thing adds up to an anti-vax party. In any case, as I followed the debate a bit last night, I thought, well, some Republicans will vote for this, but some will surely vote against the amendment or at least stipulate that they don't really agree with the whole amendment because they have no problem with the military, let's say, being forced to be vaccinated. But no, I don't believe any of that happened. They all marched in lockstep. I mean, 48 people voted for what I would regard as a pretty radical and reckless and irresponsible amendment in the midst of a pandemic when we have actually a new variant that makes things more threatening. And I guess they just think it's kind of a toss away vote, you know, throwaway vote. It's just another party vote on some meaningless amendment that's going nowhere. But it is pretty striking to me. Mitt Romney, Susan Collins, yeah. Pat Toomey, Rob Portman, they don't can't conceivably believe this. I don't know. Do they not require that their own staff be vaccinated? Do they go to events where they don't, you know, do they disapprove of other people's, other cities and local localities and states requiring vaccine mandates? Do they really think the military should just go about its business? Do they think a nurse in a VA hospital uh, that patients shouldn't have any confidence that that nurse has either been vaccinated or taken a, a test that week? Is that really their position? I can't believe it. It's become this new litmus test, which is why, and again, this whole phenomenon of the way masking and vaccinations has become this tribal political litmus test is still so bizarre, but it is a marker of our time. I mean, this is this is the culture that we live in, that these things become partisan issues and that everybody is in lockstep, which is why, and I, I just sent out my newsletter a few minutes ago, I'm sure you haven't had a chance to see it, at, in which I express some skepticism about the argument by people like our good friend David French that the overturning of Roe versus Wade could actually depolarize our politics, lower the temperature by returning it to the democratic process. Um, in a rational world, perhaps that might happen. But if you've been paying attention <laughs> to this, you know, looking around that that we are a political universe right now that polarizes everything from masking to race to guns. And we think that somehow unleashing the abortion debate into our political bloodstream is going to calm us down. I, I just don't think so. I mean, maybe at one time it might have, but I'm very, very skeptical about this now. That's funny. We that discussed happening. this on the live stream last night, which you may, you may have missed, but you were praised several times. Um, Amanda and I, and Tim, but especially I think Amanda and I, both made very similar points to what you've just said. I think it's a very important point that one can think that in 73, Roe v. Wade was A, just bad constitutional law, and, yeah. and B, a disservice to the overall political system and society because it, it sort of polarized or absolutized a debate that was actually moving through state legislatures. And it was a bit, it was not a pleasant debate, I guess you'd say. Yeah. It was, was emotional and fraught, but still was happening and was getting resolved. But, but yeah, I agree. 50 years later, overturning it and throwing it into our current hyper-polarized environment I mean, in principle, there should be ability to force people out of their corners and into the middle because that's kind of where the public is. In some states, the middle will be a little different, you know, obviously considerably different from other states, but that's the way the system 
could work and should work. And I would say it's not only even in our hyperpolarized environment, it does work in other areas. So, you know, three Democrats save defund the police. They pay a massive price for it when Republicans, you know, attach that label to the, you know, that anchor to the whole Democratic Party's neck in 2020. And now the Democrats, most of them are busy saying, no, no, we're for funding mm-hmm. the police. In fact, we want to increase uh, police funding in certain areas, right? So the system works to push people in certain ways to the middle, you know, uh, on economic issues and on those kinds of issues. But on this one, I don't, it could happen that way, but the parties have locked themselves in now to pretty extreme positions. The national democratic position is basically unlimited, unchecked abortion through the entire pregnancy. The official Republican position is a little murkier, but it's, it's moving towards a pretty, uh, you know, strict, you might say, pro-life position of, yeah. of, of of not 14 weeks or 15 weeks or anything like that, and, and maybe no exceptions for rape and incest, et cetera. And how exactly in the current, I mean, you're, you're in Wisconsin, surely the average is a voter in Wisconsin is somewhere in between. And surely, I would say the average Republican in Wisconsin is probably at least wants oh, to yeah. rape and incest exceptions. But the dynamics of the Republican Party of Wisconsin today, will that and the gerrymandering and other things, will that allow the party to embrace such legislation if no. Roe v. Wade is overturned? Or will we have just no. a... Okay. So that, no, that, no, I think, no, well, that really confirms your point then. I mean, that, that would be a little crazy. I mean, if in the state of Wisconsin, if the choice is the most radical pro-life position or the most radical pro-choice position, when there are reasonable... There are positions in between that are practical that you can imagine becoming law, but no one will actually embrace them. No, and then that's exactly the way it will play. And I think there'll be a bidding war for who will take the most extreme position in in the primaries. So, I mean, I want to make it clear that I really respect David French's position, and I've held that position for many, many years. And the argument goes, you know, that if the democratic process had been permitted to run its course on this issue, American law and American political culture would look very different, he writes. Uh, Yes, abortion would still be contentious, but taking a vital moral question out of the hands of the American public created an open wound on the American body politic. And he says, okay, so if Rose overturned, there'd be a period of shock and rage, but it might actually help depolarize America because then the question would be returned to the states. It would de-escalate national politics, de-escalate judicial nomination wars, cause voters to focus more on political races closer to home. So it could actually lower the temperature. Again, in a rational world, that might happen. In a rational world, abortion is, believe it or not, kind of ripe for compromise, as you just suggested. People have very, very nuanced approaches. And Tom Nichols and I talked about this yesterday. The reality is that Americans are less polarized about abortion than they are conflicted about it. I mean, they hold very conflicting attitudes in their head and they agonize over it. But this is going to be driven by the extreme. So I sort of game it out how this might play out. And I'm only half snarky about this. I mean, you could imagine watching some of the political you know, warfare that's going on right now. You can imagine that J.D. Vance next week will come out for a ban after six weeks, okay? Because he wants to show that he's the most conservative candidate in the race. And then Josh Mandel, who's running against him in Ohio, would then call for a ban after two weeks. And then after a couple of days, Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to declare that the true conservative position is a total ban on abortion period. No limitation whatsoever. And then Madison Cawthorn will say that if you're really, really, truly pro-life, then that demands supporting the death penalty for doctors who perform the procedure. I mean, it's it's like, who is going to be the purest, the most aggressive, who's going to fight the hardest? The people who 
stand up in favor of compromise and nuance will be just crushed in this debate. Yeah, I think, and I think if you think about governor's races, I, I just take your state of Wisconsin, yeah, yeah. the incumbent Democratic governor, I'm sure will be under pressure to mm-hmm. whatever he might be in favor personally of a law that would ban, you know, that would say viability or something like that. Abortion is, is fine up to, is legal, is permissible with certain checks, perhaps even up to 21 weeks or up to 15 weeks like Mississippi. That might be what some Democrats in Wisconsin want, but the pressure within the party, I think, would be for a total you know, uh, free, you know, right to choose no matter what. At any point. And taxpayer funding. And taxpayer funding. The Republicans will be under internal pressure to go towards something pretty close to an absolute ban on abortion, maybe not with the rape and incest exception, maybe with, as you said, zero weeks, just a ban. And that would be the choice. That, and that's a, there are two interesting. One, there's one interesting question about that, and then I have one other point. The question is, I mean, if you have Evers, is that his name, the governor in Wisconsin, running on that, and the Republican running on the absolute ban, I think it will be a huge political issue because there'll be actual stuff happening. I mean, the Wisconsin legislature will be in session at some point after the decision comes down on the Mississippi case in, let's say, late June or the beginning of July, and presumably we'll try to pass something in Evers. We'll veto it. And I mean, it's not like this is an abstract issue. And then no. incidentally, I believe there'll be huge pressure within the Democratic Party. They're not huge believers in federalism anyway, to pass some version of a national uh, codification of Roe or right to abortion. I think if they're smart, A, they might not do it at all. B, they might do it with a kind of, you know, a national right to abortion up till 15 weeks or viability. And then states could presumably mm-hmm. protect it more if they wished, you know. But that would at least seem a little more moderate. But there'll be huge pressure to pass what I think the bill that the House did pass symbolically sort of a few months ago was, I think, just a total you know, right to abortion, un, un, untrammeled, right. unlimited, huge pressure on the Republicans, obviously, to go to the opposite extreme. So it's not like it's not going to be a national issue, too. I mean, the, the, I don't think either party at this point is going to say, oh, this is not an appropriate matter for federal legislation. This has to go to the states. Oh, no, so they I think for would, both yeah. Senate and House races and governor and state legislative races, the issue will be alive. And, 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 and people can say, oh, voters don't, not most voters don't mm. care quite as much about it. But I don't, it'll be a real issue. It's not going to be a theoretical one, is I guess my sense. No, I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, every legislative, uh, every governor's race is, is a referendum on abortion. Every congressional Senate race now becomes a referendum on abortion. The presidential race becomes a referendum on abortion. And you asked the question about Wisconsin. I mean, here's the situation here. And I need to go back and do a little bit more research. But I believe there's an and old You were very involved in this issue in Wisconsin. You, you, oh, very you much. hosted, I think, the Right to Life Dinner for 20 years, didn't you? I recall that. Close to that. Yeah. And I believe there's still a criminal statute on the books criminalizing abortion. They never took it off for whatever reason. And for a long time, there was the assumption that if Roe versus Wade disappeared, which didn't seem possible until like five minutes ago, that 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 law would would go back into effect. So and, and, and I think the Wisconsin legislature will pass probably the you know one of the most strict model laws and the only thing that stands between basically the complete abolition of, of abortion, uh, legal abortion in Wisconsin, um, will be the governor, uh, a Democratic governor, Tony Evers, who is very uninspiring, who I think uh, is underwater right now, and um, I, I think is probably one of the most vulnerable governors. But now this will become a top issue. But you also raised the question, what if the Democrats stake out a very extreme position? Do they sort of neutralize the extreme position of the Republicans? I mean, this is who knows. But the the one thing that I'm pretty confident about is that this is not going to lower the temperature. 
Right. <laughs> this will not right. be, this will not be depolarizing us anytime soon. I mean, maybe it'll be unpleasant for six months or three years, and then sort of it's healthier for the system. One could make that argument in good faith, right. and it may be correct. But I agree that what this fall will look like with the issue being not just debated, but legislated, as you say, the Republicans passing a bill, Evers vetoing it, it'll be very alive for voters. And legitimately so. I mean, it's a real issue, which will be resolved. And again, at the federal level, I should think there'll be a, if I think of what they just did on the Vax Amendment, every time there's a government shutdown or any kind of appropriations bill, huge pressure to insist on a vote on an amendment banning abortions, but then also from the left, an amendment to uh, legalize abortion, right? I mean, the idea that everyone's going to listen to the Supreme Court and then kind of go about having a civil discussion in their communities about where they would like to be on the spectrum of legalized versus not legal abortion. I'm afraid it will not happen in the short term. No, I, I think that is a safe bet. So in other news, I see from Politico Playbook that Nikki Haley finally landed her one-on-one -on -one with Donald Trump after he rejected her request for a sit-down in February following her brief condemnation of his actions on January 6th. So Haley apparently continuing to say, please, please, sir, may I come down and kiss the ring? And that's going to be happening. It is. And, and I guess Marjorie Taylor Greene, I, I thought underreported in that kind of unbelievable exchange she had with Nancy Mace and stuff, was that she had called Trump to kind of get his yeah. blessing and got it and reported that she got it. Well, and, and she does. There's no question about it. I think she was on, was it, was, was it on Steve Bannon's podcast and said, you know, we represent the base of the party and she's not necessarily wrong there. But I mean, this is this, and I've, I've written about this earlier the week we've talked about it. I mean, you know, Kevin McCarthy is now completely checkmated. There's no way that he can take any action against Lauren Boebert or Paul Gosar or Marjorie Taylor Greene. And I mean, he's frozen in place, no matter what he's thinking internally, assuming there is any thought process internally that he's never going to be able to draw the line about the conspiracy theories, the anti-Semitism, the bigotry. He's frozen in place by people like Marjorie Taylor Greene. She holds the whip hand. Yeah, and, and no one's trying to unfreeze him either. That is, it's not as if 30 House Republicans have gotten together, the decent ones, the Mike Gallagher's and others, to say, Mr. Leader, we can't have a party in which um, Marjorie Taylor Greene gets to bully and really slander. I mean, Nancy Mace, and uh, because Mace called out Lauren Boebert on some pretty bad, you know, behavior and comments, and that that goes unrebuked, unchallenged. That's just business as usual. You call them both in, and they both walk out. Especially Marjorie Taylor Greene says now she's for primary Nancy Mace. I mean, she can say whatever she wants, and I guess they could have a primary challenge. But what's again striking is the silence, not just of McCarthy. But of everyone, of everyone, and then Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, this morning, I guess I, I, this was, I think, yesterday, but I only saw it this morning, uh, calls Biden a communist, and they're all communists. I think we have the audio of that, because oh, okay. I, I, I wanted to comment on this. I, I, I don't want to make it a habit of playing Marjorie Taylor Greene you know, every single day, but since she has clearly become the id of the House Republican caucus, it, it is worth paying a little bit of attention. This is an interview where she's sitting in her car talking to Real America's Voice, whatever the hell that is. I've kind of lost track of some of these outlets, right. I, have to, I have to admit. And she wants to stress that Biden's not a socialist anymore. It's a communist. And she repeats that several times. Not that she actually understands the distinction between socialist and communist, but um, this is where she's planting her flag. Joe Biden is a communist, and that's that's who the Democrats are. They're communists. communists. You know, a lot of people are swallowing down the word socialist 
but that's not a good enough word for Democrats. They are communist, and that's the word we need to keep using with them because they're using these unprecedented authoritarian, tyrannical controls on the American people to force people to comply. Yeah, communist. Okay, so as a recovering child of neo-Trotskyites, yeah. <laughs> Bill Crystal. I mean, once upon a time, <laughs> I mean, one laughs at it, and, and yeah. of course, it's idiotic and, and beyond idiotic, and she's ridiculous, and most Republican members of the House won't use that term, and I suppose if pressed, might even acknowledge that no, it's not, isn't a communist, and it's really not good for American political debate or public life for a member of Congress to call Joe Biden a communist. I mean, communist in this context does mean, as she herself, as Marsha Taylor Greene says, tyrannical and, uh, you know, when communist regimes have killed tens of billions of people. So it's a fairly serious charge, you know. Yes. And uh, But what I'm struck by is both that she said it, and I don't think anyone's going to rebuke her or distance themselves. Maybe if no. pressed, they will do so. But they're certainly not going to do what once would have been routine, which is to volunteer. I mean, Steve King just, what, a few years ago said things that honestly are, I don't know if they're less offensive, but certainly aren't more offensive. And people did say, well, you can't say that. I mean, you can't be a Republican in good standing and, 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 and express those views. And in fact, the party kind of supported a primary challenge to him and he lost. What are the odds of that happening with Marjorie Taylor Greene? Yeah, zero. zero. Well, as you pointed out that this morning, though, you know, back in the 1920s and 30s, when, when fascists in various countries called moderates, liberals, and social democrats communists, intelligent conservatives rolled their eyes, but they figured, hey, why pick fights with allies on the right? The left had to be defeated, so they kept quiet and they went along. I mean, that's the dynamic, right? It's like, okay, she's crazy, but we can't have any fights on the right, no enemies to the right here. And they convince themselves that the left is so awful, they're so terrible, that they're just going to go along. And that seems to be the pattern, seems to be replicating itself. Yeah. And then the excuse, of course, is, well, the, the voters don't want to hear us rebuke what you're telling me. But that is a vicious cycle, right? Chicken and egg thing. If, if, if they never hear, if, if conservative Republican voters never hear anyone they voted for, anyone they respect, anyone who's on the news channels they watch, saying, well, wait a second, that's, we can deplore a lot of things and you can dislike a lot of things about Joe Biden's administration, but this is ridiculous and dangerous and damaging. If they never hear that, they think, okay, I guess maybe it's a little exaggerated, but it's sort of within the realm of discourse. You know, what do they call that? Moving the Overton window. I mean, we all make fun of these things, but it does change the way politics is conducted, as we've seen, God knows, over the last six, seven years with Trump and everything he has said and done. And it does have uh, somewhat ominous, it can forecast ominous things. I know that uh, many of the listeners of this podcast are tired of hearing the word branding, and they don't want to hear it from uh, you and I, Bill. But there is a Democratic pollster named Brian Stryker who has been conducting focus groups. And again, Brian Stryker is a Democrat. And the New York Times has a very interesting interview. Uh, Jonathan Martin of the New York Times has an interview with him about his warning to Democrats. And he says, look, folks, uh, you don't have to believe Charlie Sykes and Bill Crystal. We have a problem and Jonathan Martin says, so if you're advising a Democratic client running in 2022, what do you tell them? And Brian Stryker says, I would tell them we have a problem. We've got a national branding problem that is probably deeper than a lot of people suspect. Our party thinks maybe some things we're saying aren't cutting through, but I think it's much deeper than that. And Jonathan Martin says, well, what is this branding problem in a nutshell? Brian Stryker says, 
People think we are more focused on social issues than the economy, and the economy is the number one issue right now. Jonathan asked him what drives this perception that Democrats are fixated on cultural issues. Brian Stryker says, we probably haven't been as focused on the economy as we should be. I think some of that is voters reading us talking about things that aren't economic issues. Part of it is just a natural reaction, too. We're in an economy that they feel is tough. It's hard for them to think we've solved problems when they see so many. So, Bill, apparently it is still the economy stupid. Uh, This morning we got some relatively underwhelming jobs numbers, not terrible, but underwhelming. So give me your thoughts on the economy, the Democrats, and how they ought to respond, including with their next big spending plan. I mean, I've been a skeptic about this next big spending plan uh, for this reason that I think it is about the economy, at least. It's not a cultural or social issue, I guess you'd say, but but it's not an economic growth plan. It's a social equity plan, let's just say. It's a, a expanding the welfare state plan. Some parts of it are maybe sensible. A lot of parts of it I'm, I don't believe are. And I do think voters are looking at good economic growth, unemployment low, even despite the job numbers, unemployment went down again, it's 4.2%, the worker shortage, and they're looking at inflation and they're thinking, you know, I'm not an economist, but it seems generally speaking, what we'd want here is to make sure we can keep the economy growing, keep unemployment low, but maybe uh, address inflation and just make sure we have a good economic recovery out of this uh, pandemic, which would be a huge achievement. I mean, even the current numbers are a pretty huge achievement for the U.S. economy. If you think, if you had told us all, we're going to shut everything down, and then the pandemic was going to go on, and then we're going to get Delta variant, and we're going to mismanage the pandemic, and then we're going to have this new variant, and we're at 4.2% unemployment. GDP, I think, is back as high as it's ever been. The stock market's as high as it's ever been. Uh, so labor's doing well. Capital's doing well, in a sense. Inflation is a problem, but they should be serious about addressing that. Uh, that's what I think people would like. And instead, we have this big spending bill, which voters instinctively sense you're spending all that money. It's got to be sort of inflationary. I mean, the strict economists will say, well, monetary policy, fiscal policy. But I don't think voters are foolish to have a sense that this is a little mm-hmm. weird to do this now. And the provisions of it, I'm struck when they, the Democratic line is, well, each of the provisions is popular. I think that's true at some very abstract level. Do you think you should help people, you know, families take care of elderly relatives and assist them with some of the costs of that? Sure. But a lot of it is really badly focused and and full. And the one I'm not interested in is the one they like the most, the Democrats, the left, at least, uh, ironically, the universal pre-K. What does that even mean? I mean, how does that work? You know, some some public school systems do have pre-K, especially for parents who need it, but not mandatory. Others don't have it. A lot of parents spend a little money or some considerable amount of money to send their kids to various childcare providers. Some have relatives. So what are we going to do? Is every kid going to suddenly be going to pre-K in a public school? Is that what they're saying? Or are they going to give us vouchers to pay for our Childcare, and does it matter if you're making $400,000 a year or $40,000 a year? I think universal means universal, right? So I, I just think it's people look at that, and the, the Democrats think the more they hear about that, the more they like it. I would say the more people hear about it, they think, interesting idea. Maybe we should test that a little bit, you know, in a year or two. And maybe there's some pilot programs that should be put into effect. Uh, what's happening in different states? And But let's not suddenly give people making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, quote, universal pre-K, when we need to get inflation under control and make sure we're managing the pandemic better, and let's wouldn't that money be better spent providing tests for everyone and you know, and 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 promoting vaccines and boosters? So not that we can't do both, but still, mm-hmm. I, I so I I don't I think the Democrats think they're focused on the economy when they talk about Build Back Better, 
but I think voters correctly think that's not the economy. That's that's the welfare state. And that's, you could be you could be for a bigger welfare state. I mean, that's a legitimate political yeah. position, but it's not an economic growth position exactly. Well, the other issue, just stepping back from that one, is I've long thought for many, many years, uh, so I haven't changed my position on this, that these omnibus, cromnibus bills are bad ways of legislating, cramming all of these unrelated things into one piece of legislation. It's just bad public policy. They generally tend to be these gigantic overstuffed shit sandwiches. Um, and, and it's, and it's bad when Republicans do them. It's bad when Democrats do them, but it's also, I think now turning out that it's not just bad public policy to shove all this into one big omnibus bill. It's also bad politics Mm -hmm. because rather than being able to break them out, disaggregate them and say, okay, let's talk about this particular program, why we are in favor of this. You know, do people like the fact that we continue to have the child tax credit? Public opinion is, is mixed on this. You know, should we expand funding for home health care? Is that a good thing? Is that a popular thing? Should we spend more money on broadband? All of those things, which Democrats have convinced themselves would be popular if they stood alone, but they're not standing alone. And as a result, most people don't know what's in them. So I think that it's kind of a reminder of this omnibus form of legislation is, is just a bad way of legislating, but also it's not necessarily really savvy politics. Oh, I agree. And it, it's a, the Democrats might say, well, we have no choice because of reconciliation rules yeah, and all that. But that's that. itself a choice. I mean, they could change the filibuster and, and, and allow it, um, these things to proceed individually. The irony is the filibuster is making, I think, legislation more radical and less – there's less compromise than there, Isn't that than true? there was without it. But that's a whole other debate. But they have talked themselves into putting all their – the other thing is the Biden administration, maybe this is just Biden's sort of background of being a kind of union, you know, bread and butter, Scranton, Pennsylvania politician. He thinks this is the kitchen table issues. These are the ones I'm advancing. So he's doing nothing on immigration, nothing on tariffs, nothing on democracy much, unfortunately. I'm not saying either of those, any of those would be wildly popular, but the truth is some legalizing the dreamers, giving them a path to citizenship is popular. If there's a labor shortage, letting in some people to help wouldn't be crazy. Uh, if, if prices are going up, reducing tariffs wouldn't be foolish. Economists love all that. Voters are more mixed on it, to be honest, and maybe some of those are, are, are bridged too far politically. But I don't know. I think you could honestly then stand up and say, look, some of these things I know you guys are a little nervous about, but this really will help make sure the economic recovery is solid. They talk a lot about spending, but not about the economy, I guess is the way I would put it. And I think people need to be reassured that the economic recovery is in in good hands. And I think they're nervous about that. Inflation is the symbol of that. I mean, inflation is an issue that you and I are old enough to remember it from the late 70s, early 80s, is an issue that Economists can say till they're blue in the face, and Ron Klain can say till he's blue in the look, uh, income growth is outpacing inflation, and don't panic, and gas prices are down one cent in the last two weeks, so that's actually turning better. But voters look at inflation, and for them, it's both the actual cost, which is real, and if you're on a budget, it's much more real than if you're the type of upper middle class person who goes to the supermarket and doesn't really look at the price of the individual items. You could put your credit card in mm-hmm. the little thing, and you pay whatever it is. So for working class Americans, it's very real. But also for Americans of a certain age, it's also a symbol of things getting out of control. It's a symbol of oh my God, we're going back into something we thought we had gotten away from for a long time. So I think the Biden administration has consistently underestimated the political downside of of inflation itself and of looking unconcerned about inflation. 
Well, and I think the polls would suggest that that's, that that is the case. Okay, one one other thing, I want to get your input uh, since you used to be for people who uh, are just now tuning into uh, to us, uh, the chief of staff to the vice president of the United States. So there's a very interesting piece in Axios about what's going on in Kamala Harris's office. Uh, they call it "Burnout Money Concern Drive Harris Turnover." Uh, burnout, better opportunities, and concern about being branded a Harris person are driving departures from Vice President Harris's office, according to Axios. And, you know why it matters. I mean, Harris is not only a heartbeat away from the presidency, but she would be the presumed 2024 front runner if President Biden didn't seek reelection. And yet, there's been an inordinate amount of disarray and now turnover throughout her tenure. Her allies say she has a terrific chance to reset, and they downplay these early stumbles. But top Biden officials privately roll their eyes at her team and want to see smoother, more effective leadership. Her chief spokesman, Simone Sanders, is leaving. Her communications director left last month. So give me your sense of what's going on here. I mean, why would people walk away from the heir apparent's office. I mean, that seems a little bit of cognitive dissonance there. She's, you know, one heartbeat away from being president. She's the clear front runner. If Biden doesn't run, you would think people would be flocking to her office and the opposite's taking place. So you've been there. You've been in the vice president's office. What's going on? I mean, one thing I learned in government is that people sometimes resign jobs and want to spend more time with their family and want to move on to other, pursue other opportunities and say they only wanted to do this for a year anyway, and it turns out they've been pushed out behind the scenes. And <laughs> and I've done that myself as chief of staff a couple of places, and uh, it's the right way to do things, and I, I have no, I'm not objecting to this, but mm -hmm. I, I have no knowledge. I have no knowledge of who's leaving and who's mm -hmm. being pushed out, but maybe that's part of the reason why this is some of these departures. I mean, VP is a tough job. You don't, you know, uh, the way I think of it is if you get off to a rough start, uh, it's hard to fix it because you don't have, if you're a governor and you have a bad first few months, then you can govern well for the next two years, and everyone can say, "Hey, okay, I, I that guy, that person learned on the job, or I, I, I underestimated him, him or her at the beginning." VP, you're not really in charge of anything. So once the image starts to settle, and we saw this with Dan Quayle, obviously, whether it's fair or unfair, and it was unfair in large measure, I think, with with Quayle, uh, it's hard to reverse it. Or maybe we just we just weren't good at it. The White House has the, the president's team priorities always going to be the president as it should be, and they're not going to spend a heck of a lot of time arranging things so the VP can get a little boost. So all of that makes it rough, kind of hard to be a VP and hard to be unless you already have kind of a real image. I mean, then it's a little different. Right. But if you're kind of unknown, what was she a senator for two years? I mean, uh, and, and the short-lived presidential campaign that didn't go too well, a little hard. And then the main thing I would say though is. It's unusual in this sense. I was thinking back to our first term in 1989, Dan Quayle. Of course, the thing is, would he be that so wounded if he wouldn't be kept on the ticket? I guess that was the question. But of course, everyone expected George H.W. Bush to run for election, and, and he did. That's normally the case in the first term of a presidency. That's not the case this time. So the pressure is much greater. And I think people are just overstating the heir apparent thing. I just think when you talk privately to Democrats, it's not even a reflection on her. It's just no one ever lets people just take the presidency, you know, even if you are a sitting VP or have been a VP, and it's going to be contested. 
And so that means that other people don't have quite as much of an interest in propping up, you know, it was harmless to be nice to Dan Quayle if you were an ambitious Republican cabinet member or senator or governor in 1989-90. The first time you were going to run for president was 1996, right? It was eight mm-hmm. years later if Bush won or lost in 92. Now, a lot of people are thinking, I might start running a presidential campaign what is it, December 2021? So what do you think? Summer of 2023, right? If Biden mm. indicates he's not going to run again or so I'm I'm not really in the interest of I don't have I'm not in the business of undercutting her exactly, but I'm not in the interest of propping her up. And if you're a staffer, an ambitious staffer, you might privately think to yourself, I don't know, maybe I want to work for some successful Democratic governor or senator or cabinet member and not for Vice President Harris. So I'm trying to think, when was the last time that a sitting vice president who sought his or her nomination of their party did not get it? I can't yeah. think of any. They almost always get it. I mean, of course, they're almost always in, in the second term. That is because right. if, if you're seeking it, the boss must be term limited out, right? So, you, so right. you know, Bush in 88, let's say. So I agree with that. On the other hand, if think of it this way. Think of the second term of vice presidents. Uh, which I'd say Bush, 85 to 88, uh, Gore, 97, Uh, they were pretty rough. uh, And they were going to be the nominee or thought they were going to be, wanted to be. A, they were contested. I mean, Bush had Dole and Kemp and people running against him. Gore had Bill Bradley, who made a pretty serious effort. So it's not like they just get a cakewalk. And B, they were under a lot of scrutiny. Didn't Bush have that? Wasn't there some Newsweek story like he's a wimp or something? Oh, yeah. It was huge. In the second term, and George Will attacked him and so Mm -hmm. forth. So... I think people look at the Harris thing and correctly think, geez, she's one year into the vice presidency. She's getting an awful lot of criticism and attack. But the relevant comparison is probably more like the second term of a, quote, normal presidency where people, vice presidents do get scrutinized and can get pretty uh, attacked both by the other party, Gore, let's say, with the Chinese money and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, but also their own party starts to have second thoughts. And, and I, I guess I also, Harris had run such a poor campaign and after the big hopes high hopes in 2019, early 2020, that, you know, I wonder if there's some doubts there about her. Being I think there's some it. significant doubts. Um, and as you, as you point out, though, the, I mean, the, the, the cost of taking shots at the VP is so much lower than the cost of taking shots at the big guys. So it is more of a free fire zone. But I have to say, though, there are supporters of, of Harris who will say that she's, you know, being given short shrift and that she's was set up to failure uh, when she was basically... I don't want to get this wrong, but remember when she was put in charge of dealing with the border issue? Right, right. Not really with the border right. issue. It was a little bit confusing, but that was the public impression. You know, when's the last time you ever heard a thing about her and the border? Now, the border is a huge problem for the Democrats, although and I don't think they're focused on it. But I don't know that she's has any footprint there right now. Do you, am I missing something? No, no, I think you're, uh, you're right. Yeah. I mean, so I say the White House, I don't know how much of this is purposeful and more of it's probably negligence, but we experienced this. I mean, they're just not, they'll, you know, there'll be a couple of days and we'll say, hey, we should help the vice president, put the vice president in charge of this. That way it shows the president's taking it really seriously. No one thinks what it's going to look like a month or six months from now. No one cares that much, frankly, if you're working for the president. It's like, okay, t- we took care of this minor headache for a while. Really? Okay. And and then the, then six months later when it's like, geez, I don't know, what's what's she's getting criticized because the border's not in great shape. It's sort of like, well, the vice president needs a better staff because her communications people are are not doing a, as good a job. You know, the, she has the same people now she had during the campaign and, and had, well, at least 
certainly had the first few months of the Biden presidency and he was doing fine. So I think the blaming her for the problems of the Biden administration is ludicrous, honestly, right? I mean, Biden, right. if someone else were vice president, Biden would, would have been in the 50s favorability earlier. It would be in the 40s now and it wouldn't be any different. But for her own prospects, I agree with the conventional view that maybe six months ago, people overestimated, I think, how much she was sort of on the path to succeed Biden. Maybe they're underestimating it now, but I, I do think that is wide open. I don't think if you're a normal Democratic office holder, if you're a uh, senator or governor, et cetera, you think, oh, because Biden happened to pick her, because she's a you know reasonable person mm -hmm. and so forth, that we all have to defer to her. That is not going to happen. So we will have, mm. we could have a real, 2024 could be kind of amazing politically. I mean, just to kind of, in terms of the people running in both parties and the craziness of it all, the, the unprecedented character in a way of, <laughs> of it in both parties. I don't know if it's good for the country. It may not be. Maybe it's an opportunity for someone to emerge who, who could be good for the country. But yeah, we've all focused on Trump and the Republicans. But if Biden doesn't run, that Democratic race is going to be pretty interesting. It will be wild. Bill Crystal, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And I hope you have a great weekend. You too, Charlie. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back on Monday, and we'll do this all over again. Music